ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan, on Gadigal Land. And me, Tegan Taylor, on Jagera and Turrbal Land. Today, getting you a referral to a psychiatrist if you need it is getting harder and harder, and GPs are starting to complain bitterly about it. What sits behind the huge relative risk of women getting a particular type of sports injury? And Norman, in Health News this week, an eerily familiar story that's been making headlines, reports of clusters of respiratory infections in China. Yep, it's got all the conspiracy theorists out. Well, what do we know about what's happening there? Well, not much on a factual and data basis. So these, this comes from news reports, either in Chinese media or taken from Chinese media and then gone around the world uh, in other media. Um, so essentially what we know is that, or what we think we know, is that there have been, there's been a surge of children presenting to children's hospitals across China, Beijing, Dalian, Liaoning, and places like that. So it's not just Beijing, it's elsewhere. You, social media are picking up parents complaining about poor access to care, long queues at emergency departments, and children being pretty sick and on IVs. I mean, when we're hearing China respiratory illness mystery, it's it sort of feels very early 2020-ish. Is it only happening in China? Well, we've had problems here in Australia as we lifted lockdowns. We had respiratory syncytial virus, influenza and other viruses coming through and children's hospitals being very busy with children quite sick with respiratory infections. The World Health Organization has asked China for more data. I mean, China doesn't help itself here by going silent on this kind of stuff. Um, and so there's not a lot of official data at the moment. So they asked for more information on November 22nd. But before that, Chinese authorities... Uh, did make announcement on this and they were claiming these are routine uh, respiratory infections and they claim something called immune debt. What's that? Well, I think that what they mean here is that um, during COVID, people weren't exposed to viruses such as flu and that uh, essentially we were exposed by immune vulnerability because we hadn't had our regular exposure to these virus infections. So, it's not a new pathogen like it was with COVID. It's not a novel virus. Well, what they're saying is that it's uh, influenza, respiratory syncytial virus, which in children causes a condition called bronchiolitis, COVID-19 infection, and an infection that hasn't been discussed much in Australia. It's a bacterial infection, not a virus, called mycoplasma pneumoniae. So, like, it causes pneumonia. This is a bacterium that causes pneumonia and cas- it's a bit controversial, but can probably cause encephalitis as well, but mainly pneumonia and mainly in children and young people. Is it plausible that this is what's actually happening there? It is actually plausible. I don't think that you need to go to a conspiracy theory or think of a, a new infection here. Mycoplasma pneumonia comes in epidemic waves uh, every three, four years. Some people say it's a bit longer than that, maybe up to seven years. Nobody's quite sure why the epidemics come, but it's probably because of waning immunity. Um, they don't think... Uh, that this is due to the... So remember that China lifted its lockdown 
uh, earlier this year, 2023. Quite uh, recent, yeah. yeah. Um, so it, it could be the lifting of the lockdown or it could be an epidemic wave. We are seeing a rise in Europe and Asia in reporting mycoplasma infections, mycoplasma pneumonia infections. And the Asian sites are Taiwan and Singapore, but we haven't got Chinese data. But it's not being picked up in the United States or Australia or New Zealand. There's a recent paper in, the, in, the, in Lancet Microbe reporting on this. So China might just be seeing a worst version of a resurgence of mycoplasma pneumonia mixed with other viruses and kids getting pretty sick with this. Luckily, mycoplasma pneumonia is not as transmissible as flu and COVID. So we've got a flu vaccine that has fairly low take-up, um, lower than it should be, and we've obviously got COVID vaccines. There's RSV vaccines coming online in different places. Um, is there a vaccine for mycoplasma and pneumonia? No, but you can treat it with antibiotics. Most people get um, a relatively mild infection. What are we talking about here? We're talking about fever. We're talking about cough, sore throat, a, 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 a discomfort in the chest and, and coughing and coughing that's really prolonged. And when the doctor thinks that it's been gone long enough or it's odd or they hear sounds in the chest, they send you off for a chest X-ray and they find a particular pattern on the chest X-ray, which they define as atypical pneumonia, atypical pneumonia. And antibiotics do treat this because it is, an, uh, uh, it is a bacterial infection, not a virus. So, I mean, we're not talking necessarily about a new germ then, even though these headlines do seem a little scary. No. I mean, the, as I said earlier, the Chinese don't help themselves by being secretive about this sort of thing and not you know, participating in the sort of data that we see from the rest of the world. And if they did, you just wouldn't get these unnecessary flurries of anxiety. This is almost certainly what's been seen in other countries with the add-on of mycoplasma pneumonia. Oh, well, it's one that we'll continue to watch just in case. We will. We know that for some conditions like heart disease, women are more likely to have a worse time than men. For the type of injury I want to talk about next, though, the chances of a woman getting it is multiple times more likely, up to six or even ten times as likely. And just like with things like heart disease, the cause is probably not something to do with women's fragile bodies or flawed biology, but cultural factors. So what can we do to change that? Almost like a gunshot. I don't know how to explain it. It's just a really, really like loud, loud noise. Like I thought I'd broken my shin or something, like a bone had snapped. Like it was a really loud noise that I'd never heard before. Yep, this is one of those gnarly injury stories. And you don't have to be a trained medical professional to know that when you hear something that sounds like a gunshot coming from your leg, that means something bad has happened. But in that moment, 19-year-old Marina Ivanovic didn't know exactly what had snapped. It hurt, but she could walk. She was fit. She'd never been injured before. Probably whatever this was would just get better on its own. I was able to just kind of like hobble around. And because it was my left knee, like I was able to drive because I'm right-footed. I just honestly thought I'd sprained something. Two weeks of hobbling around later, a physiotherapist in Marina's office spotted what she had missed or hadn't wanted to know about. He was like, I think you should come down and see me. And then I did, and he MRI'd me, and, yeah, lo and behold, a complete tear of my ACL and my left knee. Oh, my gosh, a complete tear. Yeah, complete tear, yep. You know that old song, the shin bones connected to the thigh bone? Well, part of that connection comes from your ACL, your anterior cruciate ligament. 
It's a thick, flexible band of tissue that's usually really great at helping stabilise your knee, especially during dynamic movements like landing from a jump or changing direction while running. But if these movements are too dynamic or if you get hit from the side, say in a contact sport, the ACL can tear. Evangelos Pappas has spent the last 20 years studying athletic knee injuries, specifically ACLs. It's not a simple injury. When the ACL tears, there are serious consequences for the knee health and probably the overall health of these athletes and their career sometimes, and so at the minimum, they're out for the season. If you've spent much time at all, either playing or watching sport, you've heard this. An ACL injury takes a really long time to recover from. For Marina, it was months and months. From there, it was like a nine-month rehabilitation. I had to get a hamstring graft, so they pulled out one of my hamstrings to make an ACL in my left knee. That must have been painful. Yeah, the healing of the hamstring was part of the actual healing of the knee itself. There was times where I genuinely cried because I was like, I'm in so much pain, it's not getting any better. What I do to fill my cup up on a day-to-day basis is like go outside for a walk or like go for a run, go for a hike or do some sort of activity with friends. And I couldn't do any of that. And it was really, really difficult for me at that time. We don't actually know how many ACL injuries there are in Australia each year because it's not well tracked. But we do have an idea based on the number of reconstructions that are done. Many thousands a year and it's rising. The other trend that's really clear is whose knees are getting injured. While there are more men overall who have ACL reconstructions, women and girls who are athletes are way more likely to get injured than the blokes. Evangelos Pappas says many more times as likely. The incidence of ACL injuries among female athletes, when we compare apples to apples, is a lot higher among the female athletes. In military training, it can go up to 10 times higher for females, so that's at one end of the spectrum. But looking at the more popular sports, you know, the football, basketball, volleyball, I would say probably four to six times is what most of the literature would agree. Okay, so there are some differences between boys and girls, but we've all got two knees. How is this gender split so huge? I'm definitely not the first person to ask this question, and a lot of people have offered potential answers over the years. Well, women have a wider pelvis. Women have a greater Q angle. That's the angle at their knee that puts more pressure on their ligaments. Women have a menstrual cycle. Instead of blaming these things for, you know, injuries, we're starting to understand that, yes, we're different, but that may not necessarily be the cause and there could be larger or more kind of complex or interplay of issues. Mandy Hagstrom is an exercise scientist at the University of New South Wales. One of her particular interests is how sex and gender play out in sport and performance. We need to understand how our biology can impact things, but also how our behaviour and how culture can influence things. What would culture have to do with knee injuries? Heaps, according to Dr Hagstrom. So if you just look in the playground, you go to a primary school and you have a look, 
often boys are playing differently from girls. Boys are kicking balls around, playing different sports, playing action games. Girls are more likely to potentially be seated or playing role play games. So even that sort of incidental unstructured activity, boys often have a lot more opportunity to develop motor patterns, to train their stabilizers, which can be you know important in injury. You can fast forward that to the teenage years and in some ways that can become even more amplified. We know girls drop out of sport earlier. We know girls play less variety of sport. What do these young girls, what do they want to do? What are the barriers stopping them playing? Is it that they're not interested? Well, if so, what are they going to be interested in? It's not just about girls losing interest in sport, though. It's also about access and investment. Women depending which statistics you read, may be less likely to participate in strength training. But they also have less access. So if you look at a lot of the top sports, the coaching staff, they're not the same between men's teams and women's teams. You know, there's a whole lot broader and bigger staff often with men's sport, which may mean, you know, women don't have access to the strength and conditioning coaches. They don't have access to the facilities. If we're talking about elite sport, regardless of sex or gender, you're talking about people who are sporty, people who are like into it and want to be participating and like have a natural ability and yet there's still this kind of disparity. Yeah, and I think at the truly elite levels, the access is probably less of an issue, but I guess you can't undo that historic lack of access. If that woman hasn't had that same access or opportunity to train over the previous 20 years, then maybe that's why we're still seeing an increased amount of these injuries. The idea that women are four, six, ten times more likely to get injured like this because of cultural reasons is frustrating, to say the absolute least. But Evangelos Pappas says it's kind of a good thing. This is good news because we can intervene. We have solutions to this problem. And the solutions are simple, they're not expensive, but they're sadly not implemented widely. The most common mechanism of injury for women is that kind of deceleration or change in direction. So, you know, you're slowing down, you're cutting to the right, you're cutting to the left, something like that. Remember that dynamic movement that the ACL is helping to control in the knee is also what can rupture it. But Evangelos Pappas says training specific movement patterns and building strength in the key muscles in the legs can make a huge difference. So we can decrease the risk of a female athlete of suffering ACL injury by up to 50%. So it is quite substantial. The programs uh, usually have about three phases. They can last probably about 20 minutes and they can be done instead of the typical warm-up program. The first phase and the last phase are a pretty standard warm-up and cool down. Then the middle part, that is the most extensive, has a variety of activities that look at plyometrics. Uh, so some of the more functional activities that happen during sports, when you land from a jump, for example, and immediately you jump up. So there's a lot of the typical activities that you would encounter in sports, such as squatting, hopping, the plank exercises, and things like that. And there is emphasis on the technique. And that is the key here. So these programs are cheap. They're easy. There's evidence to show that they cut the risk of injury. Harvard. Why aren't they everywhere? Changing human behaviour is one of the most difficult things to do. So it's not because of lack of evidence. It's just that it needs time and quite a bit of pressure for things to change in general. We have failed our female athletes by not doing more to prevent ACL injuries. Unfortunately for Marina, 
Even if she'd had access to these programs, it probably wouldn't have prevented her injuries. Instead of landing badly or changing directions too fast, both times the damage was done by someone else crashing into her. Oh, didn't I mention? Marina has busted an ACL not once, but twice. I've done it one on each side. So I've done my left knee and my right knee, unfortunately. It's all about balance. That's it. Exactly. Got to equal out the other side. There's not much you can do to prevent a contact injury in a contact sport. But for staving off the much more common causes of an ACL rupture, the race is on. It's caught the attention because women's sport has become professional recently. And now when you have an injury, there's a lot more at stake, right? The positives of sport by far outweigh the negatives. Yes, injuries might occur, but, you know, people fall over walking down the street, accidents happen. And, you know, in sport and in exercise in general, injury rates are actually not that high. They shouldn't be something, you know, promoting extreme fear and anxiety or putting people off being physically active because it's just so much better for you. Dr Mandy Hagstrom is an exercise scientist at the University of New South Wales and you also heard there from Professor Evangelos Pappas, Associate Dean into Health at the University of Wollongong and Marina Ivanovic, a keen amateur athlete who has uh, pivoted away from contact sports since injuring both her ACLs. Yeah, and Professor David Hunter at the University of Sydney reckons if you introduced that kind of training for a lot of different sports, including male sports, you would reduce the incidence of knee replacement 20 or 30 years later. But there's also new technology for ACL treatments, I hear. Well, yeah, it's a new technology for humans, a very, very old technology for kangaroos. So there's a group at Macquarie University who's looking at using kangaroo tendons instead of um, taking a graft from the own body, because you heard Marina talking there about them taking part of her hamstring. It was actually the most painful part of her recovery. It's not in human trials yet, but they're hoping to start human trials in 2024. And the surgeon, Nick Hartnell, who um, who sort of pioneered it, got the idea from watching kangaroos near his property at, at, in Bowral in New South Wales. You're with The Health Report. When you or someone you care for has a complex or severe mental health issue, the specialist you really need to see is a psychiatrist, if only for an opinion, so that they can advise your GP and psychologist, if you have one, on the best way forward. The trouble is that general practitioners are increasingly complaining that they're having lots of problems finding a psychiatrist who will accept their patients. It has so concerned Perth General Practitioner Andrew Leach that he recently wrote an open letter on the issue. I spoke to Andrew and as well to Caroline Johnson, a GP with a strong interest in mental health and who's in the Department of General Practice and Primary Care at the University of Melbourne. Thanks very much, Norman. So, Andrew, you were riled enough to write a letter on this. What's the problem? Well, it's been a, a build-up over a period of time, Norman, of increased presentations to general practice of patients with mental health distress and increase in complexity within those presentations. We, as GPs, generally are well-equipped to manage and see and support those patients, but there are going to be times where we need to get help and often that help comes from psychiatrists. My problem is really around that referral pathway and the system at play as I started to experience more and more rejections of those referrals to psychiatrists. Give me the range of excuses you get from psychiatrists when you try to refer. There would be anything from this patient cannot be seen at this clinic, just a straight out no, and please contact the patient to let them know. 
through to this psychiatrist does not specialize in this area and that particularly would be things that are more specific like ADHD, autism or eating disorders, just to name a few of those conditions, through to this psychiatrist does not manage patients in that age bracket and that's quite common around that adolescent age time. So 15, 16, 17, I found a really big shift in trying to get that age group in to see someone. Then the other one was the risk, which is this patient's too high risk. They have a history of suicidal ideation or suicide attempt or self-harming, and they are too high risk to be seen at this clinic. So the child and adolescent one is, is not new. There's been a shortage of child and adolescent psychiatrists for a long time. Mm. Caroline, is this just a phenomenon of Perth? You know, Perth is a limited market. No, I think it's a pretty widespread problem and I certainly, as someone who's been involved for more than 20 years in trying to improve the pathways of care for people, it is very discouraging to hear Andrew's stories as a keen young GP. I work in Melbourne and particularly in a part of Melbourne where we allegedly have very good access to psychiatrists, but I do think even in my suburb it is getting harder to find people, um, especially for those more complex patients and I think it's a real sign of we've been very good at um, encouraging people to seek help. I think that's one of the successes of the better outcomes in mental health care initiative, but we haven't been so good at providing the care for those more complex patients when the GP needs a bit of extra help. So what's going on, Caroline? What's your analysis telling you? Well, I think there's a couple of things going on. One is that help seeking has gone up. And I personally think it is true that during the pandemic, a lot of this has become more evident. And again, coming from a city where the lockdowns did have a pretty big impact on people's mental health well-being. I mean, we saved a lot of lives, but you know, we're now sort of seeing some of the other side of that. So people becoming more anxious, eating disorders certainly becoming more common. And then I suspect, and again, I defer to my psychiatrist colleagues to comment, but I do think that they're struggling in the same way as general practices with sort of workforce shortage low morale, a lot of pressure, with people asking for very specific things. I mean, my personal view is that people asking for more help with ADHD is part of a system saying, well, you know, I did the right thing. I came to the doctor to get diagnosed and they treated me for anxiety and I had my 10 sessions with a psychologist, but I'm not any better. Maybe you've got the diagnosis wrong or maybe you're missing something. And for a number of those patients, it's, it's quite legitimate to ask the question, are you missing something else and do I need treatment for something more tricky? And that's where, of course, for the GP, even though we're pleased that patients are coming forward, if they're not getting better with those standard treatments for the common high prevalence conditions, then we do need extra help from people who are more expert. Andrew, there's always a distribution issue. I mean, people say that there's a shortage of psychiatrists, but there's probably, you know, if you take Perth, for example, in the western suburbs of Perth, there's probably a psychiatrist in every street corner, uh, whereas if you go out into the hills, there's not. And certainly if you go out into regional and rural Western Australia, there's not. And that's probably true in other parts of Australia as well. I mean, are you finding this in downtown Perth as well, not just in the outer suburbs? Oh, yeah, I think it's across the board, Norman. And I'm in an urban setting of Perth and I work right next door to a, a major hospital. So that, you know, I, I would say that if this is happening here in middle of Perth, I would say that's far worse up in more rural and remote areas of WA. And I can't imagine what they are going through to try and get help from a psychiatrist. Caroline, anecdotally, people are saying, well, you've got these psychiatrists who are abandoning just general psychiatry for online consultations with ADHD, where they're charging $900 a consultation. We've had Angela Vapia reporting on this for a while. Sometimes it's even higher than that. So they're making a lot of money not to minimise the impact of ADHD on individuals, but they're making a lot of money out of a very narrow part of psychiatric care. I mean, are psychiatrists abandoning general psychiatry for high-income areas? 
I don't have enough data to comment specifically, but I think that's a good question to ask the College of Psychiatrists. I mean, I think that generalism in general is is struggling. It's the same problem we have in general practice that you can actually have a less stressful and more financially rewarding career narrowing down your field of practice. And that's actually not what the community needs. We actually need people who are generalist in their skill set, both in primary care, but also in psychiatry. And I do suspect that if more and more people are asking for a psychiatrist to do a narrow and narrow thing and prepared to pay for it, it may change the practice for some psychiatrists. But of course, that's at great cost to other members of the community who have other psychiatric healthcare needs. So Carolyn, is part of the problem here Medicare and how it's billed? If, if a GP wants to consult you know, a phone call with another specialist, a non-GP specialist about a patient, the billing for that is actually fraught. Um, and if you do a joint consultation with a patient, only one of the doctors can actually bill. Are we too restricted in Medicare so that you're not getting a fluidity where all you might need is five minutes of a psychiatrist's time to advise the GP? Yeah, well, you've touched on what's a, a much more broader problem than just our interactions with psychiatrists. Absolutely. If we could call specialists without it being a financial impost on our business and their business, we could save an awful lot of money to the healthcare system because sometimes a quick question and a quick answer is much more cost efficient. But, you know, for the GP and for the other health professional, it still takes time. So, you know, I do, as an academic GP, I do my sessions in three and a half hour blocks. And I can say that my three and a half hour sessions in general practice normally take me about five hours sometimes longer. And that extra hour and a half, a little bit of it is spending a bit more time with patients who need it. But a big chunk of it is doing exactly what you described, bringing up people, chasing up test results, asking for advice. And you don't get paid for it. You don't get paid for that at all. I mean, you know, you could argue that if you got paid well enough for the three and a half hours when you're actually having clinical contact, it wouldn't matter. But of course, that's been squeezed as well when you look at the cost of running a practice and all the other bits and bobs that go along with it. And I'm sure that our colleagues in psychiatry are experiencing exactly the same problem. So yes, fee-for-service isn't answering that problem of how to work more collaboratively. And given that we're calling for multidisciplinary team-based care, we're going to have to think of some innovative ways of funding it because fee-for-service probably won't cut it. And just finally, Andrew, what do you do then? So you've got somebody's come in, they're in psychological distress, they've got anxiety, depression, may even be even more severe than that, major depression, and you can't get hold of a psychiatrist. What do you do? Well, a lot of this comes back to us as GPs being good at, you know, working with that patient, holding them, seeing them more regularly, supporting them through that difficult time. If we can't get access to specialist care, we have to do some of that care ourselves and, and manage them to the best of our ability. But which, you're absolutely which is right. fine, we, but 30% of your patients with major depression are not going to respond to standard therapy. Yes, that's right. And look, that's something that we just have to keep writing with them and working with them on that. It's not always easy. Um, and there's not always an answer. There's not always a treatment that will work. We just have to keep supporting them. And quite often patients just appreciate that. But absolutely right. I think if we can contact a psychiatrist and be able to utilize the Medicare system for that time, it would make a huge difference to how we manage patients, in a, you know, have a quick response and a quick treatment plan than before, while they're waiting to see someone. And Caroline, just finally, I mean, we haven't mentioned clinical psychologists here. We're obviously a mainstay of the mental health system. But their problem is that they're working in isolation and not necessarily geared for the complexity of the cases that need it. They need to be part of a team too. That's absolutely right as well. I mean, I certainly believe since better outcomes, I've been much better able to access 
good quality care for most of my patients with depression and anxiety and the clinical psychs are one of my main go-to people for that. But where I get stuck is the more complex patients. And as Andrew said, absolutely, they're the ones that I struggle with because they've already had all their allocated sessions with a psychologist. So either the psychologist and or the GP are holding them. So part of that comes down to we probably do need better treatments for those more complex mental health conditions and we need to be able to work as a team more effectively. Thank you very much to you both. Thanks, Thanks, Norman. Dr. Caroline Johnson is in the Department of General Practice and Primary Care at the University of Melbourne. And Dr. Andrew Leach is Director of the Garden Family Medical Clinic in Murdoch in Perth. Now, after talking about this, Tegan, on RN Breakfast, I got this text from a Sydney-based GP agreeing with the proposition. And she says, mental health teams and psychiatrists are in general really bad at communicating to GPs. They don't tell you what they're doing while they have the patient and then send you a discharge summary when they're done with them. Secondly, there are not many funded psychiatric positions in the public. Public system. And thirdly, community mental health teams do not have adequate capacity. Even the acute care teams will tell you that half the time their referrals for care coordination get knocked back. Well, we've asked for a response from the College of Psychiatrists and hopefully we'll bring you that next week here on The Health Report. But for now, that's all we've got time for. We'll see you next week. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.